You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, your podcast for in-depth discussions of national security law and the history that gives you the context you need for real understanding. National Security Law Today is brought to you by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, a member of the committee staff, and I'm joined by national security lawyers here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. Hey, thanks for listening, everyone. NSLT has created a safe space for national security law nerds like yourself, like us. We're glad you're here, even if sometimes you get rejected on that first date when you try to discuss the nuances of the National Security Act of 1947 as amended. We feel your pain, but in our world, you're a rock star. Hey, we're joined today by Mark Zaid, a private attorney specializing in national security issues, where he often represents clients who have a grievance against the U.S. government or some governmental agency, or even a foreign government. And he is also the executive director and founder of the James Madison Project. Now, this is not the first time that Mark has joined us on the podcast, and we're happy to have him back to talk about the Foreign Sovereigns Immunities Act and state sponsors of terrorism, as he is something of an expert in the area. He was one of the early guys. He brought an FSIA case against Libya for the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 Lockerbie, uh, and work to amend the FSIA himself. So, Mark, thank you so much for coming in on this very interesting day. We're glad that you're here to talk about the really interesting and extremely tragic case uh, involving Marie Colvin, uh, a courageous and amazing woman um, whose family and estate sued the Syrian Arab Republic. So um, if it's okay, Mark, I'd just like to start by letting our listeners who may not be familiar with this case know some of the facts because they are uh, absolutely shocking. Absolutely, and it's a pleasure to be here. All right, well, uh, Marie Colvin um, was one of those people who likes to be in conflict zones and is good at it. Some of you may remember her as the journalist who wore an eye patch that covered her eye, black eye patch. Um, She was really pretty spectacular in the sense that she'd interviewed Muammar Gaddafi, Yasser Arafat. She was in and out of conflict zones for the last, really, 30 years. So her family, um, after she was killed, and as we'll explain uh, in this podcast, literally at the direction of the Syrian government um, and the government of Bashar al-Assad. So what happened was, let's just recap, and I'm going to take this directly from the opinion so we're not ad hocing anything. Uh, What happened is, as the Syrian conflict broke out, uh, there became really no media, formalized media networks that could cover the conflict in country. Colvin, who is, you know, terribly courageous, and her cameraman uh, decided that they were going to get in, and they located uh, an individual who was a known pacifist in the area who assisted them in getting access to the city of Homs. Uh, so they went in there uh, in 2011, and I believe it was, but from and that was the end, 2011 to, to 2012, um, they set up and established in home something called a media center along with other journalists who were trying to get a satellite in there so that the truth about the conflict could be broadcast. Uh, and in particular, the court notes that the level of violence that was occurring in country at the time was extreme. Bombs were being fired into densely populated areas and snipers were targeting and killing small children and women Uh, and other unarmed civilians, Um, and we're not even talking yet about the gas attacks as well. 
Let me just say a word about uh, Marie Colvin's history. She spent 25 years writing for the British newspaper, the Sunday Times. She covered conflict zones in Iraq, Chechnya, the Balkans, East Timor, Sri Lanka, Sierra Leone, and Libya. Um, and she was in Baghdad uh, through the Gulf War bombing in 1991 and witnessed the American bombing of Tripoli in 92 and interviewed Muammar Gaddafi in that time frame. So at some point, a grenade blinded her eye when she was in Sri Lanka, and she became known for this eye patch, but uh, that's awfully reductive. She was clearly known for her work. Now, eventually, the Syrian government uh, targeted this, this encampment in Homs, which became known as the Media Center. Uh, and it, the degree of intelligence that they had is set forth in the opinion. It was also decided, you should know, um, on January 30th, um, and it was the Judge Amy Berman Jackson of, of the United States District Court for the District of Columbia. We'll give you a Westlaw site because that's what you're going to need at this point. 2019, 2019, Westlaw 367897. Um, and eventually, in the most horrific way, that media center for journalists was specifically targeted as if it were an attacking army, which clearly it was not. It was a bunch of journalists trying to serve to bring truth to the public. Um, the result was that she was killed, um, and the information presented at trial showed that it was the decision of the Syrian government forces to do so, uh, and that they even spoke about her in the most disparaging of terms once it was over, uh, sort of reveling in the death of this courageous woman. So, Syria got sued. What the heck happened here? Um, I'm, I'm glad that they did because uh, she was really something. What were the tools that they used, Mark? How did they get to the point where they were suing the Syrian government? We've talked briefly about the Foreign Sovereign Sovereigns Immunities Act and the fact that it uh, it really protects nations from being sued unless what? So it was historically that foreign governments always had absolute immunity from suit. And there was a essentially just agreements between countries as to when countries could be sued. Then in 1976, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act was created by the Congress, predominantly because by that time, foreign governments had started to get in the business of being in business, meaning they were running commercial businesses. They were running steel plants and mm. concrete, cement, things like that, and creating it. And it was perceived that, look, if you're running an actual business, you shouldn't be immune from liability simply because you're a foreign state. So it predominantly dealt with commercial activities. Then at the last minute, there was a non-commercial tort provision put in because just like with any type of legislation in the United States, it is influenced by current events. And there was a very uh, well-known doctor here in the District of Columbia, who was injured or killed, I don't recall, in a car accident with a diplomat. And it happened literally while they were engaged in, the Congress was engaged in this legislation. So they added in this non-commercial tort that if the tort happened inside the territory of the United States, you could also sue. In fact, I used that provision uh, what, 20 years later, uh, when I represented the family of the young girl killed in DuPont Circle by a Georgian, Republic of Georgia, diplomat who killed this 16-year-old Brazilian girl in a drunk driving accident in DuPont Circle. So we didn't have to worry about sovereign immunity because that was an exception. So 
fast forward to how we are in modern days, every state still has sovereign immunity unless one or more of the exceptions within the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act applies. And there are some other examples that are not just commercial. Uh, If there is uh, a judgment obtained overseas or through arbitration, you can seek enforcement here. That will be relevant when we talk about whether this case, whether this judgment will be able to be enforced. Over the years, many types of cases were brought against foreign countries in trying to right wrongs. So there was the the most prominent back in the day, uh, Orlando Letelier was murdered here in D.C. He's the former foreign minister of, of uh, Chile, I think, right? Uh, and uh, in Sheridan Circle. But again, because that happened in the United States, jurisdiction was easy. Uh, at one point, the Soviet Union was sued for the death of Raoul Wallenberg, the former Swedish diplomat who had helped save Jews in World War II and who had disappeared and is presumed to have been killed or died in a Soviet prison. Uh, and the family members were able to get a default judgment against the Soviet Union. But, as is will be relevant to this case against Syria by Marie Colvin's family, default judgments under the FSIA can be reopened by the foreign government at any time. So this is different than how we normally would proceed in litigation inside the United States. If there's a default judgment, you're stuck with a default judgment. So let, let's break that down in the most simple terms. So they, there's a $300 million judgment against Syria. Um, so Syria could revisit that in the future. At any time, at any time. And, and this could be once the plaintiffs, if they ever could, and it's unlikely, somehow find assets of Syria inside the United States. I've seen some press reports that they're going to try and execute on assets outside the United States. The problem with that is very few countries, if any country, will recognize a default judgment as a viable judgment that can be executed upon. I don't even think we would here in the United States be willing to do that. Uh, and, you, and I'm sure anyone who's a lawyer and even a non-lawyer can understand why a default judgment, which has no opportunity, even though they had an opportunity, but there was no... Uh, no adversary proceeding. Proceeding, really. yes. Yeah. Adversary proceeding. They didn't put on evidence. They no, didn't try to rebut that. anything. So they can open it at any point in time and and go back to trying to challenge jurisdiction as well as try to challenge the substance of it if they wanted to. And this provision that exists now was enacted in, 19, in April of 1996, signed by President Clinton. It is the terrorism exception. Uh, now it's in 28 U.S.C. Section 1605, uh, capital A, then small a, 1. It's moved around since the time I helped draft it back in the early 1990s. It used to be 1605A7 um, as one of the enumerated exceptions, but for whatever reason, they redid the FSIA at one point. And it came about because there were all these cases that were trying to be brought against Iran and Libya to some extent, um, Germany at one point for uh, Holocaust deaths, Mm. uh, torture cases in Saudi Arabia, and I was working when I was representing the Pan Am 103 families. I actually started this effort when I was in law school uh, to try and help terrorism victims go after their, their state perpetrators. And the case I was following at the time was the Achille Loro hijacking, which was in 1985. 
and Palestinian terrorists uh, had hijacked this luxury liner in the Mediterranean and killed an American passenger, Leon Klinghoffer, threw him off the ship. Right. This was an individual in a wheelchair. This was a very, very significant case and remains a significant case. And they sued the PLO. The family sued the PLO and Libya and I think Syria, if I recall, too, um, to saying that they were state sponsors to try and get uh, judgments against them. And I remember talking to the attorneys who handled the case when I was in law school trying to see how to strengthen the effort to go against uh, terrorists. Now, they were primarily focused against the PLO. I was focused on state sponsors. I knew uh, students who were on board Pan Am 103. It was a very personal matter for me. And so when I became a lawyer and then was down here in D.C. in 93 and started representing the families, we knew we were going to have a sovereign immunity problem. Now, before this exception, you had, again, tried to fit within the different exceptions. So we were looking at, for example, the non-commercial tort exception, and we were making the argument that just like with a ship that is registered in a whatever state it's registered in, it's a floating island of that state. That's how mm-hmm. maritime law had developed. That's true. Whatever you're flagged. Right. Uh, flagged vessel is a vessel of that state, true. We were making the argument, among others, that Pan Am, which had a huge American flag on its tail, was essentially a flying vessel that was an American vessel and territory of the United States. And actually, jurisdictionally, for criminal purposes, that existed as well. If you, know, if you think about it, if, if a crime is committed on a plane, well, who has jurisdiction? And there were international treaties that said, okay, where it left, that country had jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Where it was going to arrive, that country could have jurisdiction. Uh, the nationality of the perpetrator, the nationality of the victim, all of these were possible basis for jurisdiction. So we knew we would have problems, and we ultimately did. But during that process, I wrote to create another exception. And we were working with uh, victims particularly at the time, those Americans who had been hostages in Lebanon. We were working with them and their families, and we were working with others like Len Garment, who was President Nixon's White House counsel. Uh, he represented some folks. And it was, a fascinating underst- it was a fascinating escapade of trying to understand how Congress works, how legislation gets drafted, and how politics on the world scene, on the international scene, impacts everything. We had two competing bills, and this is just all uh, helpful, I think, for this discussion of how we ended up with the Colvin case today. We had a House bill where we were trying to be the international lawyers and say, look, if any country commits these types of atrocities, any any country, doesn't Mm -hmm. matter who, friend or foe, including the United States, that they should be held liable for that type of act. And the problems with this legislation was Over the years, numerous members of the House and Senate had tried to enact this type of legislation. The problem was they they always tried to define terrorism. And, you know, there's an old saying of one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. It's all about perspective. And so it's really difficult to define international terrorism. I mean, there are criminal statutes that do it, but on the world scene, it doesn't apply very well. So... We had to try, first get away from that, and I, and I was able to persuade the House and Senate staffers working on it that let's not focus on what we, what we define it to be. Let's define or describe what we know it to be. 
And what years was this? This was 1993 to 1996. And so it's kind of fresh at this point that we had um, gone into Afghanistan in order to assist what were then just the Mujahideen, later became the Taliban, really, because we were trying to get Russia out of there, the Soviet Union. So to your point, at that point, they seemed like, you know, in Charlie Wilson's war parlance, the freedom fires, these dignified, what did, what did Carter say, these dignified uh, Muslim people that, you know, later ended up facilitating terrorism. So that's an interesting yeah, twist. That's a nice, absolutely. a nice illustration of how this problem shifts. So we came, I, I said, look, this is what we need to do. These are the statutes. Let's look to international law. And international law, what's called use cogens. Uh, these are crimes from which no state can derogate. You can't come up with an explanation or a defense for why you committed genocide, for why you committed hostage taking, for why you committed war crimes. Uh, these are well accepted uh, crimes. Uh, that no one can commit. So we put those into the statute. So the statute talks about if you commit an act of torture, that's based on an international treaty, extrajudicial killing, which is what was used by Marie Colvin's family, aircraft sabotage, which was the Montreal Convention, which is what we used for Pan Am 103, hostage taking, and then some staffer added in the provision of material support or resources for any of those activities. That was all added in by them. And at first, we had some we had some hearings. We we made a lot of headway, and then the Republicans took over the Congress in 1994, and everything stopped. And anyone who remembers back at that time, they had the contract on America that the Republican it was a platform, and you know they they listed this is what's going to be our priority. And and unfortunately, suing terrorist states was not among the contract on America list, so it kind of fell to the wayside. And then actually what revived it, even though we continued to obviously make headway, what revived it was Oklahoma City bombing in April of 1995, because at first it was all promoted to be that that had been an international act of terrorism, possibly Iraq or at least Middle Easterners. It turned out to be obviously homegrown terrorists, but that put this kind of propelled the legislation back to the forefront. Uh, and the Effective Death Penalty Act, or hate something like that, it was called in 1996. Anti-terrorism and effective death. Yes, yeah. right. That mm -hmm. became the vehicle for us to be able to push this. Now, again, I, what I was saying, the House version was every country. The Senate version then limited it to those countries on the state-sponsored list of terrorists, as designated by the Department of State. That's still what's in the language today, and. When I did it, it was seven states. Now it's only four states. Uh, and if you go to the State Department website, it, it says who it is. It's North Korea, Iran, Sudan, and Syria. And actually, North Korea was on it at the time and then taken off and then put back on two years ago. Uh, Libya was on it at the time, which was helpful for us, obviously. Iraq was on it at the time. Cuba was on it at the time. But these are political designations as much as they are substantive. So depending on the relationship between the country and the United States, countries will waive, waver from going on and off the list, which is why North Korea was taken off at one point and why Cuba is now off and, and, uh, and Iraq, obviously, uh, and Libya. So the statute gets passed in 1996 by President Clinton and Everyone, we re-sue Libya because we had been dismissed under the FSIA. 
And then you see a slew of cases. Most of the sure. cases since 1996, now it's been, oh God, how long is that? It's already 20, 23 years, right? Um, Can you give us a flavor for some of these other cases it, that came in? It's mostly been against Iran. Uh, there were a number against Iraq. Uh, certainly there were there was a very small number against Syria. Uh, I, I'm sure it's increased in the last few years because of mm-hmm. what's been going on. But before that, it was mostly that these countries were supporting Hezbollah, supporting Hamas. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were Israeli bombings, bus bombings sure, where American right. students were killed. Uh, that was a great number of them. Some of them were hostages. Some of them were hijackings. Um, there weren't that many cases against Cuba. And, and, in fact, there were a lot of instances where we're trying to figure out why was Cuba even on the list any longer because there really wasn't evidence of Cuban state sponsorship of terrorism for the most part in the last 20-plus years. Uh, it doesn't mean they were a good country by any means, but they weren't doing what Iran was doing, which was financially supporting terrorist groups mm-hmm. around the world who were targeting Americans. The vast majority of these cases were, just like the Colvin case, default judgments. They would file suit against the country. They would serve them. Uh, there are ways in which, as set forth in the act, that you have to serve the foreign country. You just give the you have the court send the paperwork to the State Department, who sends it to the diplomatic representatives, who, whoever might represent our interests in those countries. If we don't have interests, uh, like for example in the Colvin case, the Czech Republic represents our interests in Syria. So the service, the complaint, and the summons were sent to the Czechs, and the Czechs delivered it to the foreign ministry, uh, and that affects service. And then you tell the court when we sued Libya. I mean, I literally mailed the paperwork to the Foreign Ministry of Libya, and I got back a pink return receipt card wow. from the <laughs> Libyan government. So that That's was something. that was pretty easy to do to affect service on them. So let's. So the bottom line is, at some point, you go through this process. The default judgment is entered because the facts are presented, and in the case of Colvin, through a slew of expert witnesses. Uh, each of whom had some sort of discrete knowledge of either practices of the Syrian government in the relevant time period, um, how what was happening within the media center when this when it was clearly shelled on purpose. You get this great big judgment. I imagine people looking at this, listening to this for the first time, would say, "So nobody gets their money, right? Nobody gets money of any kind from anyone anywhere." But it turns out uh, that's not really true. It it has varied. And sometimes it requires innovative thinking by the plaintiff's lawyers. Now, there have been a lot of cases since the Col- before the pre- that predated the Colvin case against Iran and Syria. So there's been a lot of judgments where people have attempted to obtain funds. And there were basically, I'd say generally, two ways in which plaintiffs were able to get funds. One was to see, well, are there assets here in the United States? And... They're usually against these countries were assets in some banks because that had been frozen by the United States. Years earlier. Years and years earlier. Response to sanctions. Exactly. There were also instances, it was fascinating for some of the Cuban cases, where there there are still, at, at the time when we had real sanctions against Cuba, there were still commercial activities going back and forth. You know, if you wanted to call Cuba, you could. Well, that meant that AT&T was paying money to Cuba 
for the privilege of having telecommunication services. So there were there was money going back and forth between American companies mm -hmm. through American banks and then Cuba. So the plaintiffs in one of the cases tried to seize those funds, mm -hmm. but it was interestingly decided that well they weren't Cuban funds until they like actually got to the Cuban government, right. so that they couldn't be intercepted along the way. Other times in some of the cases, like Iran, Iran has antiquities throughout the United States that are on loan, or, or at least you know stuck here, let's say for decades because they were on loan by right, agreement right, earlier. Right. Now they're not going back. And, and they've tried to seize those, and most of the time they haven't been able to. Uh, diplomatic property has generally been uh, out of line. Uh, you know, you, you can't do it. You can't, uh, and probably as a policy attach. matter, not the greatest idea. No, because... Down that road, then they'll do the we, same thing right, to us. Right? Our property, we usually have the largest embassies anywhere right, in the country, right. so that's not a good thing uh, that would be allowed. So, you know, they try to, to seize these assets wherever they can, and for the most part have been failures. The other possibility was a few of the plaintiffs, in particular the, the Flatow family, uh, whose daughter was killed in Israel in, I think, 1995 or so in a, a bus bombing, they, enacted, they got some members of Congress and then Congress as a whole to enact legislation that said certain judgments that were obtained against state sponsors of terrorism could essentially be turned into the U.S. government sort of exchanged and you'd have to waive your punitive damages and you'd get compensatory plus 110 like 110 percent of your compensatory so i guess plus 10 percent basically so, so i agree not to get you know extra damages from this country in exchange for which i give my right to this judgment over to the united states government right. now, which agency would receive that then and it was it was taken out of the u.s treasury and I personally, I had a lot of problems with that because when, when we enacted the statute in the first place, it was to punish the foreign government. And in fact, Judge Jackson in her decision in the Colvin case mentions Sorry. that the whole notion of the punitive damages is to send a message to the foreign government that this conduct is unacceptable. Right. And well, if the U.S. government is paying out the money from our treasury, our taxpayer money, I, I mean, that's fantastic for the family members. I'm really glad that they're getting some sort of compensation. It will never replace their loved ones who were lost or injured. Uh, but, I, you know, I'm sorry. There are Americans killed all over the world all the time. Uh, and their families don't get any type of compensation because they don't fit within a case that they could bring against a foreign government. Um, I, I have a client who's imprisoned in Iran right now. Now, again, Iran is part of the state-sponsored list, so... Theoretically, maybe at some point we could bring suit, but hopefully he'll be released and we won't have to worry about it. But if you think about all the Americans that are in jail in different countries around the world, where the legal system is very different than ours and maybe not up to our standards, it doesn't mean that you can necessarily sue them. And, and maybe it's so egregious that they should have been entitled to compensation, but there's no mechanism. But what frequently happens is that then these judgments or the assets that have been seized become a, sort of a, a point of negotiation, as they did during the Algiers Accords, um, you know, when we were trying to wrap up what was happening to our citizens who had been held hostage yes. in Iran. And quite frankly, as soon as Iran got the money that they wanted, the hostages were let go. And that is an ugly truth that, you know, they take these hostages under so-called principles but at the end of the day, when they get the money, you know, it's just been a bargaining chip 
And that becomes a government-to-government negotiation. So, you know, the basis of this legislation was so that we as the individuals, the families, the lawyers could take action that maybe the U.S. government couldn't or wouldn't undertake. And it did ulti- something like that did ultimately impact the Pan Am 103 litigation because when now Libya defended itself in court, one right. of the few countries that ever did to its credit to the Gaddafi regime that actually saw it through. Got American counsel, showed up. Yes, every step of the way, right. never sought to, no, to back out. Qaddafi didn't walk into the courtroom, but they no. had, you know, they had able counsel here that presented their version Absolutely. of the events and advocated on their behalf. And we ended up settling and, and Libya paid out. And ultimately, part of the settlement was then actually negotiated. We settled for $10 million per plaintiff, which still to date is the largest terrorism settlement uh, against a foreign government. Uh, $2.7 billion altogether because there were 270 victims. So there, it mentions in the opinion that there is a judgment fund that uh, possibly the Colvins can go to. But the fact is, as is also recognized by Judge Jackson, the 9-11 victims have pretty much depleted that fund because of how many people that there were. So now, as you were mentioning it, this could be used as sort of leverage. Yes, at some point in time, Relations between the United States and Syria will improve. Maybe that will be during Assad's regime. Maybe that will be after Assad's regime. But whenever that is, this and any other judgments against Syria will be on the table for Syria to have to address. Because if Syria renews its ties with the United States and starts having business, commercial businesses, it'll have funds going back and forth and then the Colvins can attach any legitimate assets that are free. Uh, So what would undoubtedly happen is the U.S. and Syria will negotiate some sort of resolution uh, to this case, uh, probably not including punitive damages because most countries don't recognize them, uh, but some amount of money that will no no doubt be part of uh, this type of resolution. And you mentioned the Algiers, Algiers Accord that the Reagan administration negotiated. Now, uh, a number of the hostages from the 79 takeover of our embassy right. sued Iran. And they were actually, those cases were thrown out initially because of the Algiers Accord saying, the court's ruling that the Algiers Accord had resolved those claims on a country-to-country basis. Uh, so something like that could happen. Um, Congress could do something like I described with the Flatow case. But most of these cases are symbolic more than anything else. Uh, and, it, and it provides a degree of closure for the family members, for sure. Maybe one day they'll see money. You, you mentioned about how the, the evidence was. And so default judgments, the statute talks about how the claimant has to establish uh, his, his or her claim or right uh, by evidence satisfactory to the court. But it doesn't define what satisfactory means. And the D.C. Circuit has held that basically means some amount of information, of, of evidence that, that essentially would be what that word satisfactory means. And it could take different dynam- diameters of it or parameters, I suppose. Um, in the past, it's been he- actual evidentiary hearings with live witnesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a case against Iraq for, against, for 9-11, saying Iraq committed 9-11, actually. And... There were witnesses, the former uh, director of Central Intelligence Agency, Jim Woolsey, testified. 
and they actually won a verdict against Iraq uh, for perpetrating 9-11, which may shock lots of people because that's not the view that we hold, that Iraq had anything to do with 9-11. So no, certainly not. <laughs> this is sort of where, you know, you, you can see the problems with a default judgment standard. It's very easy to get a judgment against a party when there's no other party opposing the evidence. I tell you what gives me some comfort, though, that these facts could be made out in the future is the fact that her uh, photographer survived and testified, it appears, uh, provided uh, evidence in the case. So that is helpful. And it sounds like there were witnesses percipient to these events. So I think in this case, I would like to believe, though we're just predicting here, um, that you know, any any case that were to go forward would certainly establish that journalists were killed and they were targeted, uh, and it looked like they had some communications that came in from between members of the foreign government over there where they, uh, you know, were celebrating um, the death of these journalists who were just struggling to bring information out of the conflict zone where... Uh, unfortunately, the regime really had locked it down and there was no media. Yeah, so in so, this case, they never had an evidentiary hearing. The judge decided it was unnecessary. So everything was documentary. And so, and she sets forth what she relied on. There were three expert reports from people who are knowledgeable about Syria, how the Syrian regime operates. Uh, there was a damages expert, and there's actually going to be further proceedings about damages. They had declarations from Syrian government defectors whose identities are being, some of whom identities are being protected for obvious reasons. They had declarations from those that were there, as you mentioned, her photographer uh, who survived, uh, who were there at the time. And some of these individuals were not only former military, but former Syrian military. So they described how they heard the bombing and they could tell, one, it was Syrian artillery, and two, that the spacing of the attacks was a type of targeting uh, that was being used to specifically target the center, the, the media center that Marie Colvin was at. Then they had a whole bunch of evidence to show that the Syrian government had absolutely targeted journalists, uh, that they felt that journalists were threats to their regime. And there was evidence that the Syrian military cheered and celebrated uh, her death, including by name, uh, and that the commander, who in fact uh, was in charge of the attack, was awarded a car uh, right, as, a, right. as, as a prize. He's given a bounty. Yeah, for yeah. having murdered her. And, and that is the key difference in this case uh, versus many other cases where journalists are unfortunately killed. I mean, there are instances where we, the United States, have killed foreign journalists. Um, there was a case in, in Iraq where, uh, I think it was Iraq, it might have been Afghanistan, actually, now that I think about it. But in any event, we mistakenly killed a Reuters reporter, a photographer, photojournalist, I believe, um, not knowing they were a journalist. Uh, you know, that's what happens in war, unfortunately. The difference in this case as to why it fell within the terrorist exception for extrajudicial killing was that Marie Colvin herself and her colleagues were specifically targeted by the Syrian regime for execute, for capture or if not execution. Right. So they deliberately murdered her. That's why it fell within the exception so that they could, the family could sue. 
So we've talked about how there are some issues with the prevalence of default judgments and sometimes a difficulty in extracting the actual damages that are awarded. In your opinion, are, are there improvements that could be made to FSIA that would make this a better process for those who are seeking to get those damages? Are there perhaps, you know, wish list amendments that you could propose to the statute? It, it's a great question, and it's a very difficult concept to come up with because most amendments to this statute are often a opposed by the U.S. government. I mean, we, like I I mentioned, if it hadn't been for Oklahoma City, I don't know if we ever would have gotten this legislation passed, maybe after 9-11. It always required some precipitating event because the U.S. government doesn't want any opportunity for foreign governments to be sued here in the United States for, to some degree, understandably, because they're concerned they'll be sued elsewhere around the world. And we engage in lots of questionable things, at least questionable in the minds of the other countries, the other citizens uh, versus ours. And we have lots of assets everywhere. So uh, there was a big issue with uh, Flight 655, around Flight 655, that we shot down in July of 1988, July 3rd, 1988, mistakenly, hopefully, uh, but we killed 290 people who were on a trip from Tehran to Mecca for prayers. Uh, And they sued, actually, here in the United States, but they weren't able to get anywhere because of procedural problems with sovereign immunity here in the United States and in a variety of other things. It wasn't really sovereign immunity. It was like political question doctrine and other things. Uh, But that became the subject of a a state-by-state or state-to-state negotiation. So any effort, yes, the, the short answer would be yes, But the problem is the reality of trying to get that to uh, become reality would be really difficult because the U.S. government would oppose. So certainly there could be uh, attempts to allow for attachment of, say, diplomatic property. It will never happen. uh, Or assets that are frozen, but it will never happen. So it's mostly, I I think with the, the big thing I would really love to see is to have it expanded, as we originally envisioned, to go after every country. Because the same argument that we made to the U.S. was, I'm sorry, why are you opposing us being able to sue any country here in the United States for acts, criminal acts that are of such a level you can't commit them, including us? I hope we're not committing genocide around the world. I hope we're not committing war crimes. If so, we should be sued too, uh, and I'd be one of the first people to do it. But the politics, with a small p, the international politics won't allow it. So it, it, it is difficult, again, because of who these countries are. They are, say, the worst of the worst, generally speaking. They often, we don't have international relations with them because of that problem relationship, which means they don't have funds that are here. Uh, so I guess it would be great if we could have some sort of international tribunal that could be uh, participate in this. Uh, certainly, if we were able to get a judgment that wasn't a default judgment, then uh, there would be an opportunity to take that overseas and execute it on assets that are in countries where those countries are doing business with them. Uh, and as I said, there is a provision about arbitration uh, agreements and judgments. And in fact, one of the requirements of this new provision, new 
23 years old already, but was that you offer the country an opportunity to arbitrate. And that can be satisfied with just saying, hey, we send, you know, we send a letter and said, we're willing to arbitrate under the following international arbitration rules. What say you? And if they ignore it, which they generally do, as they did in this case, then you've You're satisfied done. that yeah. requirement. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been really fascinating. Um, uh, there, I would encourage anybody listening to this to learn a little bit more about Marie Colvin. Um, she was really uh, quite a woman. Uh, I hope that she'll be remembered far longer than the Assad regime will be. Um, and I just want to say you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. You can also drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or on Twitter at ABANatSec. We welcome your feedback. Mark, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And everyone, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.